I think the point is the left uh, must go beyond the politics of harm reduction, poverty management, to also constitute a vision to discover hopes and offer and dispute for the future, which can be an alternative to vision offered by the extreme right that is apocalyptic. Hello everyone, welcome back to BungaCast. This is Alex Hochuli and this is another special BungaZone 2022, uh, our occasional series on the Brazilian elections 2022. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday the 28th of September, which means that the election is only four days away. Lula of the Workers' Party, or PT, is set to come first with a, basically a toss-up, whether he wins a first-round landslide or requires a second-round runoff which he's also set to win. Uh, you'll probably already know this if you listen to the previous episode. And I should say also, if you want to know more about Brazil, we'll be doing plenty more episodes on this over the next month, picking up different sorts of themes beyond the obvious sort of election chat. So if there's something in particular that you think we should cover, whether it's you know the role of disinformation or developmental economics or Chinese trade with Brazil, whatever it might be, uh, feel free to get in touch and let us know and we'll uh, see what we can do about that. So um, today uh, we're joined by three guests. Uh, the first is Fabio Luiz, uh, who regular listeners will know. You can hear him on episode 189, Pink Tide Paradoxes, which was a retrospective on the progressive wave in Latin America over the 2000s. Um, and it was uh, based also on, on Fabio's book, uh, work, uh, which is out in book form in English, which is definitely worth checking out. Again, uh, this will be linked to in the show notes if you do want to check it out. But I'm going to ask them each in turn uh, to introduce themselves. So Fabio first. Hello. Uh, so my name is Fabio. Um, I'm a professor of Latin American studies at uh, the University Federal University of Sao Paulo. Um, as Alex has said, I've, I've, I've worked on a book on the Latin America Pink Tide, which came out by Haymarket um, two years ago. And my most recent work is, is, is named uh, The Doctor and the Monster, which is um, a reference to the Dr. Uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. And this is uh, also a reading. It's more of an essay uh, looking at the Pink Tide, but, uh, but specifically um, on, on Brazil. All right, very good. Well, it's great to have you back, Fabio. Uh, and next, we also have, we have uh, Thais Pavez, who uh, will introduce herself. Hello, good night, good afternoon. Uh, well, my name is Thais. I'm a researcher of the University of Sao Paulo, and I work uh, with popular political imaginary and the rise of Bolsonarism with an ethnographic approach. Uh, in the next months, I hope, I will publish uh, the result of an extensive uh, research on 2018 elections entitled the uh, Avirada Bolsonarista. Very good. And yeah, we'll look forward to talking a little bit more, uh, maybe towards the end, a little bit about uh, about your research on crime and work in, in urban peripheries. Uh, and finally, uh, Daniel Cunha. So uh, my name is Daniel. I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Pennsylvania State University. Uh, I've recently finished a PhD in sociology, and uh, I'm also an environmental scientist and a chemical engineer originally. So my research now is on climate science as a development of May 68 counterculture and the social movements of the 1960s and 70s. So it's a very transdisciplinary. Mm. Uh, I'm also co-editor of Sinal de Menos magazine in Brazil. Fantastic. So um, to get started uh, and to actually set this in context, the, the intervention which you've written, which uh, has been published in Damage magazine, amongst many other places, it's been published in Portuguese and it's going to be published in, uh, I, I hear, in some other outlets around the world. Um, I think it's quite an important uh, intervention. Um, you are part of a collective that have put it together, and I'm going to ask you to speak about that in, in just a second. Um, but it looks at, broadly speaking, the constraints the future Lula government will face, its supposedly uh, unrealistic pragmatism, 
as well as deep social changes ongoing in Brazil. So I think it's a very worthwhile read. Um, I'd encourage listeners to, to check it out, and it's obviously linked in the show notes. So th- this collective is written, the Coletivo Desmedida do Possível, or the Unbridled Possibility Collective. So um, whichever one of you three, uh, if you would tell us a little bit about the collective, who are you and what's your general intellectual and political orientation? So I'll take that question because I've been part of the collective since its inception. I think uh, the idea came uh, first with a, a colleague whose name is Daniel Feldman. We, he, we wrote together this book, uh, The Doctor and the Monster, that I've just uh, mentioned. And uh, we met in the, in the unions, professors' union movement in Sao Paulo. And we, after being part of that movement for a few years, we started uh, promoting uh, discussions on trying to look at, at politics in Brazil and the, at a deeper level. We also thought that being uh, professors, part of a uni, an university, that this could, that we could bring uh, original contributions or at least that, that we could um, have a, a, a stronger intersection between our work and, you know, and, and, and militancy and activism. Uh, but soon uh, the, the union um, environment was, was not, we, we didn't find it fit for that. And we also thought that uh, it, was, it would be very welcome to have people that are not necessarily, you know, professors. So we started, uh, we broadened that group, which started a, a little bit like a, a group study. And then with this, then we, as, as new people joined it, um, we had two, I think, two key ideas. The first is that uh, we live, we have, a, there's a lack of political imagination in the left, both in Brazil and worldwide. So we, we had to, 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 um, to have, have a better understanding of the world we live in, but in a way to conceive uh, paths out of this world. And the second uh, idea is that um, also professors, or let's say people who are professionals of, of, of critical thinking, they also face you know, neoliberal constraints in the sense of competition, individual production. And, but on the other hand, we, th- we felt that to, to have a better, a firmer grasp of where we were we are and try to conceive, you know, these different original landscapes. Um, an inter, uh, we had to. This, this must, have, this must be of a collective uh, uh, task force. So we started um, inviting new people, very different backgrounds, as you can have a sample here when you see that Daniel has this, uh, um, you know, engineering background. Thais comes from sociology. I come from history, and we. So we, we do not meet because, or because of academic interests or because of academic purpose, but because we want to make a, a contribution to debates on how to overcome you know, capitalism and the commodity society as the way that we are. And this, so this, this document that you've just read is part of this, uh, is one of the small intervention that we've worked on. But the, I think the, the, the most, um, our long-term effort points to visualizing uh, new alternative uh, landscapes. So the name of the collective also um, points to that, trying to find contradictions and the possibilities that, that, this, that, that our um, context uh, point to. Yeah, no, excellent. Um, and I, I, unfortunately, my translation of unbridled uh, unbridled possibility doesn't sound as nice, I think, as uh, "desmedida do possível." But anyway, um, yes, because that's... because "desmedida do possível" is a poem. It's a poem that was written under dictatorship in in the in the sixties. But it also has you know a catch up with, with Marx because he he also looks at capital 
as you know as as something that 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 that, that you know overcomes every limit so it's different it's difficult to translate yeah no it did, didn't capture the, the yeah indeed the poetry of it um but uh, more concretely um i think we should get into exactly what the what you kind of propose what your intervention is you make in the um in the intervention a defensive case for lula rather than an enthusiastic one uh, it's kind of a position that i myself would share uh, a lot of supposedly quote-unquote anti-fascist voting around the world against right-wing populist and nationalist figures operates on this sort of uh, logic of the lesser evil you know voting for the democrats over the republicans the uh, the pd over the fratelli or the lega in, Ita- in italy um, which uh, listeners will have heard in the last episode which has just come out and so on and it generally follows this pattern is this what you're proposing here? I mean, do you would you cast Lula as a lesser evil, um, or, or is that or is that too far? I think for me that's a little bit too too far. So uh, we think that there can there can be no doubt that uh, Lula winning the election is a better option than Bolsonaro staying in power. Uh, Bolsonaro represents uh, possibly the worst in world politics today. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we think that ousting Bolsonaro out of power is just the beginning of something new that has to be In the sense that Lula represents a kind of politics that is tied to certain uh, to certain mechanisms of doing politics and doing economic politics that are tied to uh, 20th century uh, politics and economic patterns. Meaning Lula is, uh, when he was president for two terms, then Dilma for what, uh, two, if he could complete, she could complete the second. What they tried to do was inclusion by through consumption. Uh, there, it was highly unpoliticized. Uh, in this way, it was a weaker movement if compared to other parties in Latin America. It was less politicized, less uh, polarizing than in other countries of Latin America. And it was uh, basically based on consumption, depoliticized consumption, ascension of lower social classes through depoliticized consumption. Uh, We believe that this is clearly uh, no solution for the future uh, because it is based on a model of economic development that is uh, obsolete nowadays. Uh, we think that uh, uh, we are living in current global capitalism. This is not only about Brazil. We are living in what, what can be called the anachronism of value. And this also relates to the name to the name of the collective. Desmedida de possível, the mismeasure of... What's the word that you used again? An uh, unbridled possibility. I don't know how to translate that either. Yeah. But, uh, so abstract labor is not a, 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 a desirable, if it has ever been, a desirable measure of wealth anymore. Uh, in the sense that material wealth is produced so abundantly, but at the same time, surplus population are growing more and more because more and more commodities can be produced with a minimum quantity of labor. This is what Marx theorized in the Grundrisse and the fragments on the machines, for example. So Brazil kind of shows this very well with the presence of slums, huge slums, uh, and not only real, but the real are the most famous ones. And at the same time, Brazil is key today in uh, the capitalist world system as a provider of raw materials. So Brazil furnishes soy, iron ore, and other commodities to China, which is where production is mostly concentrates in, in global capitalism today. And this, this is also tied to American debt in a global cycle in which Brazil, China, the US, and basically then the whole world is tied in a system of, on the one hand, surplus populations, on the other, financialization. And um, in this context, we think that Lula's proposal of social inclusion through consumption is obsolete. So we think that electing Lula is, in a way, a lesser evil, but it's far, far from enough. I'd like to add something on that. I think that beyond being obsolete, 
uh, we've been working on um, a framework that looks at this, uh, this, let's say, this social management of social uh, tensions that lulism uh, governance produces. It not only is, is ineffective, it also generates new tensions. So if we, we in, in, our, in our text, we talk about uh, um, contention of the crisis and acceleration of the crisis. So if we, we, we could think that uh, Lulism as, as, as other, let's say, progressive brands of politics that we have seen in Latin America, we, we could frame that as, as, as a politics of containment, of crisis containment, while Bolsonaro, Bolsonarism would be acceleration of the crisis. However, what we've been looking at is that um, uh, the policies that Lulism implements in order to contain the crisis, regardless of the intention, they do not avoid the crisis and they accelerate that in a second moment. So for instance, when Danielle was, was just referring to, um, to include inclusion by consumption, so this is a, 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 a grammar, a different grammar as opposed to uh, social universal rights. It's an individual, it's, a, uh, it's a commodified. So you are pumping money. And so, so it's all, a, let's say it's a neoliberal um, way of living that it's being promoted with that. It, so it, it obviously it does mitigate, it does help people especially those, the, the poorer ones. But at the same time, it also uh, deepens, you know, commodification of society, neoliberalization. And uh, so subjective, neoliberal subjective also gets deeper into mm -hmm. people's hearts. And this is key to understand Bolsonarism that came afterward and, and particularly the popular support that Bolsonarism um, has. I think this is important also because it's not just you saying that we wish Lula were more radical than he is, but, you know, oh well, um, but rather that there's something impossible in, in that politics, or at least that it doesn't produce what it pretends to produce. And I think that, you know, those contradictions that you talk about specifically linked to that idea of inclusion through consumption is something that um, if listeners are familiar with the June 2013 protests that erupted in Brazil, in some ways that was a, a, a crystallization of those contradictions right there, that there was a lot of frustration in Brazil with the lack of you know, improving improvement in public services, for example, or formal employment and so on, because the connection to social improvement was relatively narrow based on individual consumption, as, as you've just been describing. So I think I think that's a, a, an important um, thing to say that it's this isn't just a it's sort of a, a, a sort of more of an imminent critique. It's not just saying, hey, <laughs> you know, Lula, why don't you do more radical stuff? That would be, you know, that, that would be what we would prefer. But actually, there's a certain self-undermining nature to to yes, that form. I think this is this is very important point, Alex, because um, we are not. So you ask it if, if we're talking about, you know, a lesser evil alternative. In a way, yes, but in another way, not, because we're discussing politics beyond elections. We're looking at what elections cannot change. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it goes much beyond. So it's not a criticism to Lula or to the PT, but it's an attempt to think about what this politics means. So it's not a moral, it's not a judgment. It's just trying to understand, to critically understand what it means, what it implies, and what it where it takes us to in this context. Yeah, I mean, I just want to add a note just before we go on and speak a little bit more specifically about the kind of political and electoral aspects, uh, which is that, you know, especially maybe for listeners abroad who aren't familiar with the Brazilian political system, it's incredibly immobile. I mean, it's it prevents the creation of any majority, electoral majority, so that it doesn't matter if you win the presidency, you have to win the presidency with a coalition behind you. And that doesn't even mean that Congress necessarily will be in your favor. In fact, it is guaranteed that it won't be. And so you have to effectively farm out a lot of your policies to other parties and buy off a lot of parties um, through pork spending for, for whatever pet causes congressmen may have. So it's not just simply that um, you know, it's a matter of wanting Lula to do more, but the, the structural constraints, even within politics, 
of, of Brazil is, are, are such that um, it's very hard to actually achieve any, anything. Um, now, I want to just quickly discuss the, the question of Bolsonaro. I mean, I think you're right. It, it probably is a real uh, condensation of all the worst aspects of politics today that Bolsonaro represents. Um, unlike, you know, you could even find in some respects certain kind of right-wing populists in Europe who you would say, well, you know, they're they're responding to something um, maybe concrete there for a desire for repoliticization or whatever. Or, you know, Trump, for example, um, captured a certain section of working class votes, uh, in trying to and and you know oppose the political establishment, I think Bolsonaro is really just the acceleration of all the most anti-developmental tendencies, all the most anti-democratic tendencies. Is completely neoliberal on one uh, on one hand, you know, and, and the nationalism that he proposes is just purely a repressive one. So I think it's you know <laughs> he, he I, I've called in in other things that I've written uh, the Brazilian elite the worst in the world, and I think Bolsonaro is kind of just the the peak of that really, um, but. The, the thing that I think a lot of people are discussing and are interested in hearing about is this threat of a coup attempt by Bolsonaro because he's promised not to leave uh, office unless he is, uh, well, either either uh, arrested, dead, or um, I forgot what the other one was, uh, arrested or dead. And he says, I'm definitely not being, being arrested. So anyway, um, this discourse obviously has a lot of people worried. I have in recent days, weeks, become a little bit less concerned about that, in part because of the degree of elite backing that Lula has received, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But I wanted to ask you, what, what's your thinking on this? What, like looking at it now, it's Wednesday, the election's four days away. If there's a second round, it'll be in a month and a bit away. What are your thoughts on the possibility of a coup attempt? I, I don't think any of us believe that Bolsonaro would be able to successfully lead a coup. But uh, anyway, I, I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, my take on that is that um, the, the coup threat works here much more as, um, as something to, to, that helps Bolsonaro negotiate his impunity after he's out of power, yeah. his impunity and his sons. Like um, you talked about the elite backing to Lula, but we, we, you shouldn't forget that the U.S., the United States has made you know, several statements backing you know the the result of the elections which in this very specific context it it means backing lula because well, i mean because lula is not threatening the result of the elections only bolsonaro that does so so they're backing lula and in in latin american history there's never been a coup against the united states when that eventually happens we don't call that a coup we call that a revolution <laughs> yeah no, indeed, indeed. I, I, I yeah, I, that's my line of thinking very much as well. And that it's a, yeah, it's a bargaining chip for him to get himself off the hook. Um, and with the judiciary having acted as one of the only important polls against Bolsonaro institutionally, they are, um, well, they, they'd be able to kind of cast, cast their hand in an important way. So yeah, it might, it might come down to one of them. It's like, listen, I won't make too much of a fuss if you, as long as uh, you don't arrest me. Um, so yeah, can I, can I make, yeah. can I make one, one comparison just to uh, may, may shed some light on that? Because there is this small country in Central America that's called Honduras. In Honduras, it was the first place where there was, you know, this judicial style of coups in Latin America in the 21st century. In 2009, there was this president, Manuel Zelaya, who was flirting with Venezuela. Anyway, he was deposed in a sort of, you know, judiciary, um, parliamentary coup. And um, Honduras would delve during 13 years it, with the, it, they were they were uh, governed by their sort of Bolsonaro, which is a, a person that's named Juan Orlando Hernandez, who was a very uh, known as as somebody with, with very known uh, links to narco traffic, drug trafficking, and you know all sorts of dirty um, activities and all sorts of corruptions. So when he eventually stepped out of Honduras last year. He lost elections first. He lost elections to the wife of Zelaya, to the wife of the man that was deposed in 2009. So she came back with U.S. support. And Juan Orlando Hernandez is currently in jail in the United States, facing, you know, conviction for, for his links with, with drug trafficking. So this, this kind of issues should not go unnoticed to, to, to Bolsonaro and his, his family. So it's, it's in this context that I think 
that he's trying to negotiate his impunity. So as to Lula's coalition, uh, he's assembled a very broad one behind him, and he has the backing, whether tacit or explicit, of a large part of the Brazilian establishment. So I wanted to break this down for people to, to kind of really present a picture of um, of how this has come about. So firstly, how has Lula managed such support from people who firstly voted for Bolsonaro in 2018 um, and probably backed him and often were um, tried their hardest, especially from you know, 2015 onwards to see Lula behind bars, if not worse. So um, how did that, how has this come about? And then we can talk a little bit about what the different components little and what the fractions of capital or the establishment are that have come to back Lula and which ones don't. Thais. Uh, in the first place, I, I want to highlight that uh, being a majority has become something funda fundamental for the extreme right. Okay, as this majority is a kind of free pass to carry out from attacking to media to cook threats. Uh, it is a kind of authorization, as the same uh, Bolsonarists usually say, uh, to carry out what they consider uh, important to face establish, establishment. So it's important to defeat Bolsonaro in the electoral field. Okay. Uh, as, you, as you know, there is a real possibility that Lula will be elected in the first round. His electorate, especially among the poor, which was very divided in the 2018 election, is once again giving him a massive support due to, social, uh, to the social disaster in which the country finds itself, uh, where hunger, for example, has grown at astounding uh, levels. Yeah. They know that in the past, uh, in the PT government, they had some uh, relief. So it seemed to me that in a pragmatic way, people are coming back uh, to vote on Lula. However, uh, Lula had a lot uh, of difficulty or a kind of limit uh, to advance among the evangelicals who are mostly pop popular who are also uh, concentrated in the peripheries of large and medium-sized cities in the country, but which is in, in 10 years, more or less, should become the majority. Uh, the Northeast, for example, where Lula have a strong support is still uh, mostly Catholic. Uh, the popular Catholicism is, strong, is still strong there. Uh, this is something to be concentrated, concerned about it, because in this case of the evangelical growing, as it is a religious, a religious group, they do not think politics only as a management of social programs, for instance, uh, but also they think politics in the imaginary plane as not negotiable values, for example, as a worldview, and it is in the field in this field, in the social imaginary, that the extreme right has had a great advantage. Uh, in fact, is among evangelicals, one of the social groups where Bolsonaro still actually wins. Yeah. No, I think that that aspect is very important. And um, if we're talking about looking beyond the election, looking beyond elections in general, at kind of what changes are going on in Brazil and what challenges are faced, that's such a major one. Um, and it is a yeah the, the worldview of of evangelical is particularly Manichaean. It's um it, it's one yeah. in which um it, it quite individualistic um if not kind of in terms of the individual at least in terms of uh, defending the family against a hostile outside world and that becomes very difficult if your if your <laughs> if your program and vision of politics is based on society um which kind of in my understanding and I, this is a, a question Thais whether amongst uh, evangelicals and especially Bolsonaro supporting evangelicals, whether the, there is a concept of society there or if it's only the individual, the family, and then nation and God. Yes, there's a conception of a nation, a Christian nation. Uh, for example, in the last uh, Independence uh, Day movement, in the 7th of September, I was there interviewing people and it was very, this was the, very. This was uh, the on, on marking Brazil's Independence Day, which Bolsonaro turned into a rally for himself, basically. 
exactly. And it was were was were very clear to me that people was uh, engaged in a collective uh, idea of belonging of the Christian nation. So uh, this idea of Christian nation uh, is um, a kind of promise of uh, redemption uh, as a result of this uh, very um, war between uh, good and evil, uh, as, you, as you know. Uh, but also, uh, I, I, I think we emphasize that in, the, in our uh, letter, I think the point is the left uh, must uh, uh, go beyond the politics of harm reduction, poverty management, uh, uh, to also constitute a vision to discover hopes and offer and dispute for the future, which can be an alternative to vision offered by the extreme right that is apocalyptic. Therefore, there should be a mobilization and, and probably a new imaginary that can be constituted as alternative to, fe to face the extreme right that enter in this field of imaginary. I think it, I think you're right in terms of the the left needing to present something which is goes beyond just harm reduction and responds to a little bit what even the big evangelical big and small evangelical churches respond to which is a certain crisis of meaning a, a sort of void of, and and uh, for the left to bring a sense of social purpose um, because I think the, the left has become wedded to a certain humanitarian kind of uh, bare life vision where it's just about protecting from the from the worst material evils without presenting a, a, a vision beyond that. Fabio. Yes, there is this uh, US intellectual who Thais introduced to our group, invites him to a discussion. His name is Benjamin Teitelbaum. He has this very interesting research where he looks at the, at the, at the political, at the religious currents underlying the thought of Steve Bannon in the US. And while he looks at that, he finds that it, they are very similar to the ones underlying the thought of Durgin, Alexander Durgin in Russia. And then he finds out that it's this very same uh, religious and uh, sociological tradition that underlies the thought of Olavo de Carvalho, who is lesser known, but he was Bolsonaro's guru. Philosoph uh, he, he, he just passed away last year, but he was, you know, uh, the, the guru of this writing Brazil. So, and basically these people, he titles his book, War for Eternity. So he's looking, so these people, they, they conceive political struggle as, 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 as part of, 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 a, of a much larger struggle for eternity, which in, in, in can even be, have, you know, this apocalyptic um, di dimension that Thais has just mentioned. So, in the other hand, when we look at uh, progressive politics in Brazil and elsewhere, what is Lula uh, proposing as you know as a, as a landscape of the future? There is not much. Actually, what he proposed is a comeback to the past. So we have this this contradiction of a of progressive politics that looks to the past and not to the future, because they have very little new to, 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 to promise or to offer people. So basically they are, you know, um, expecting that the very good old days of Lulis that were pumped by, you know, the commodities super cycle will come back. But we know that in this uh, international conjuncture, this is very unlikely to happen. Yeah. I, I always, I get the sense that just that Lula speaks to, uh, a different Brazil that doesn't exist so much anymore, or, or is, you know, he speaks to a more traditional Brazil and to a more Catholic Brazil. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why he's also strongest in the Northeast, which is the most Catholic and most traditional part of the country. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that both the PT and the left in general have to face up to. Um, Danielle. Uh, yeah, just to add something to what Thais and, and uh, Fabio said, just said, uh, the ideologue I was considered the main ideologue of Bolsonaro's government. His name was Araujo Ernesto Araujo. He was a minister, foreign was minister, the for, yeah. foreign minister, foreign relations minister. 
he wrote a text, a highly ideological text, in which he published it, in which the references are Evola, uh, no, only fascist guys, Heidegger, Evola, uh, mm -hmm. Spengler, this kind of stuff, in which he constructs a myth of Brazilian history as the manifest destiny, similar to the US as a manifest destiny. And uh, so Brazil would be the realization of this Catholic mission. He builds a story from the Crusades, actually putting himself in the same text. He, he claims that Trump would be the great guide of humanity <laughs> and, uh, and Bolsonaro would be part of this. But then the point is he constructs a whole myth of, of, of Brazilian history as a sort of manifest destiny. And while doing so, he completely excludes by really not mentioning once slavery and indigenous people of Brazil. So uh, there's this whole ideology of, on the one hand, it has an element of transcendence that the left has lost, extremely yeah. perverted, but it is an element of transcendence the left has lost. And on the other, it's extremely racist. And, uh, well, we are seeing what's happening in, in, in Brazil with indigenous people. right? Yeah, now. I mean, there's a, there's a deep kind of U.S. envy, I think, amongst Brazilian far right. But that's a whole other story. Let's not get into that. And, and to move from uh, questions of transcendence and meaning to the vulgarly materialist, uh, let's talk about the Brazilian establishment and uh, try to break it down a little bit. Talk about who has backed Lula explicitly, who has tacitly backed Lula. Um, for those who don't know, there was a, you know, kind of open letters written by bankers associations, industrialists, and so on, pledging themselves to democracy and the rule of law. Of course, probably more interested in the rule of law than in democracy, but, you know, that's <laughs> that that's what you would expect, I guess. Um, but I, I guess it's interesting, um, especially for those who don't know Brazil, you know, when we say the establishment is backing Lula, that might come as a surprise to certain people. Um, of course, Lula was able to work very well with the establishment for for the, while there was growth and while kind of everybody could be a winner, um, which all fell apart once that sort of win-win came to an end. Um, but it, it's interesting and surprising and surprising if you were to ask anyone in 2019, 2020, maybe even 2021, that such a thing would come about. It might have been a little bit of a surprise that such large swathes of the establishment, not just uh, kind of the cultural establishment, for example, which would be more progressive, but um, finance um, and other sections. So maybe I don't know who wants to take this, but if you want to try to break down um, who it is that is part of the establishment, which parts are backing Lula, which parts are not, which parts are backing Bolsonaro. I think this is also part of uh, the, the collaboration to debate that we try to bring, which is, I think, that um, outside of Brazil, there is maybe, of course, there's a lot of hope on Lula's comeback, around Lula's comeback, but it has to be understood that he's come back. He's not coming, you know, on people's arms. He's coming back essentially because of, um, as part of an, a kind of an elite uh, counter movement to Bolsonaro or sections of the elite, important sections of the elite. Just to, to give um, a, a sample of that, we must bear in mind that the very same judges that brought Lula uh, to prison in, in 2018 elections. And therefore, they were directly responsible to the election of Bolsonaro. It's very serious. They took Lula out of prison three years later. And there were no new uh, judicial facts. There, were no, there was no people in the street. There was no popular pressure on that direction. So we are left you know, in the blue of on, on, on why, why has that happened? So the most probable hypothesis is that this has, this was an answer, you know, to, to negotiations, let's say in the, in the, in the upper um, uh, strats of, of, of Brazilian society in order to bring Lula's alternative back to the electoral game. But why would they do that? So let's remember that the context when Lula was released from prison, it was, you know, early, uh, it was a, a, a year ago, it was, we were, uh, the pandemic was hitting Brazil at its, you know, it's, it, at its full ex extent, not only the sanitary crisis, so we were like over 3,000 people dying every day, but also the economic crisis, and it was no light in the end of the tunnel, the vaccines were not there yet, 
So it was exactly, precisely in that context that Lula was brought back to the game, to the political game. And so, uh, so why are they supporting Lula? So if we come back to the analogy that I uh, proposed uh, earlier, if, if we think that, you know, uh, the Lulism is, is, can be seen as politics of, of, of crisis containment and Bolsonarism as acceleration of crisis. If we said, if we argue that the containment does not prevent the crisis, but it, it, it eventually helps to accelerate the crisis, we also have to look that the acceleration of the crisis also will eventually demand a crisis containment. So to bring that to, to, a, to concrete examples, Bolsonaro's management of, of, of economics became dysfunctional or became counterproductive to many sections of capital. I will bring two examples out of many that could have been named. When Bolsonaro gives you know, statements you know, against the Chinese in the Trump-like manner, you know, defaming Chinese, he's hurting agribusiness who basically sell their commodities to China. When Bolsonaro burns, or Bolsonaro's government authorizes the burning of the rain, um, Amazon rainforest in an unprecedented uh, speed, he's hurting the interest of those that are signing, you know, the agreement, the free trade agreement with the European Union, which is, which, which has, came, you know, has, has stalled. So not to mention the financial capital, who don't see with good eyes, you know, political instability because this is um, this is not what we will invite, you know, in foreign investment to the country. So they're looking for political stability. So in many uh, ways, uh, Bolsonaro's became harmful to, you know, to 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 business interests. Let's say, yeah. to in a way that when this uh, letter that you've just mentioned. Uh, was was launched. There was one of the key promoters of the letter. He just put it bluntly. He said, "We are losing money with Bolsonaro." So this is so so in that so it is in that context of acceleration of the crisis that containment comes back as an alternative, and Lula embodies that containment. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, Lula is is. Uh... Brazilian capital, Brazilian capitalism's greatest servant, probably greatest manager that they've had. I mean, not just in not just purely in terms of profits, but in terms of kind of the legitimacy that he would give the Brazilian state, um, Brazil's international stature, and so on. Um, and I think a lot of people maybe don't recognize that, and the Brazilian elite have often not recognized it just because they're too short sighted um, to to really grasp that. But um, but I think that's that's the situation. So he he now comes back as a sort of uh, a plausible alternative, um, a plausible alternative uh, electorally, but maybe not concretely, because you use this term uh, of un- unrealistic pragmatism, um, which I think is a great phrase. Um, so tell us what that is. Well, but why uh, why do we speak of uh, unreal pragmatism in relation to the alternative or reconstruction uh, DPT experiences 20 years ago? Because the scenario has changed, reality has changed. Uh, now we know, uh, now we not only have the old problems of uh, capitalism crisis, such as growing inequality, but we also have an environmental ca- crisis, food crisis, etc. In view of these, economic growth uh, has to be rethought, rethought, and it must be considered that we are facing a society in which jobs are rapidly disappearing and uh, undergoing all types of uh, flexibilizations and uberization processes. So there is a new reality, both on the planet and in the world uh, of labor. And it changed, uh, this reality changed mainly uh, because uh, today there is a 30% of extreme right in the country. Uh, And the novelty of this extreme right is that they are valuing the election and more serious than that, they're putting minds and hearts, as I said. Uh, the extreme right entered for real in the dispute of the social imaginary and offer a new horizon of the redemption of suffering and corruption through a world, as, as I said, of 
good against evil, which has an important base of support uh, on evangelical and has been sown on into daily life by pastors and police. Uh, in this sense, I, uh, it, we think this very likely that a new economic crisis and a new environmental crisis will increase these forms of competitive reproduction of life. The war uh, of all against all and the mass of people who live permanently in disgrace and threaten it will increase probably. Uh, and therefore, uh, the increase in chaos uh, and the desire for order uh, at any cost uh, yeah, reinforce the uh, Bolsonarism uh, kind of alternative because Bolsonarism uh, perfectly combines order and disorder. And uh, therefore, uh, there is a risk, uh, for example, of new insurrections in the face of, of a model that despite implementing policies to alleviate poverty and other forms of material suffering has not made the necessary reforms to change people's life, especially in large cities uh, and which were in the root, for example, in the massive uh, mobilizations of 2013 in Brazil. Uh, the life experience of people in public transport, in public services, uh, queues and in precarious jobs was humiliating. And this generated enormous frustration and resentment, and above all, of all, uh, generated this anti-establishment uh, anti feeling, uh, and which, as we have seen from the result of the 2018 elections, included not only PT governments, but also politicians from the central right party to oppose it to PT over the years of government. So this uh, anti-system sentiment has been mobilized by the far right with great success. Therefore, nothing seems to indicate that the objective uh, conditions so well used by the extreme right will disappear. So this considerate this uh, situation is to us, unrealistic pragmatism. I wanted to talk a little bit about the war of all against all, which Thais already mentioned, uh, which I think in, in the Brazilian context, it's important to emphasize that it sometimes is a literal war uh, of, of all against all in terms of the sheer degree of violence. So, I mean, it's it's something that is used maybe met metaphorically to describe capitalist society, especially capitalist society today around the world. Um, but it's something which uh, pr provides or rather presents a sort of uh, existential insecurity, I think, which goes beyond just the, the insecurity of, of precarity of not knowing where, uh, you know, if you're going to be able to afford a house or if you're going to be able to, you know, feed your family even, but it really even of, of be you know, remain alive effectively. So I think um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear a little bit more in terms of from Thais, in terms of what you've learned in your own kind of ethnographic research on, on this. Um, you work specifically on crime and on work. So I'd be interested to hear on that. Yes, uh, in first place, this war of all, of all against all, uh, lived mainly by the popular classes, generated what a Brazilian sociologist called uh, elementary forms of power in the peripheries and was brought to the center of national political life by Bolsonaro and will not disappear after the elections. Um, it happens that Bolsonarism is a regime of armed power originated in the, in the urban peripheries. Uh, in other words, it, it is a political organization, a political regime uh, for the ex exercise of power that appears on the margins and reaches the center of politics in a society of micro entrepreneurs. Uh, we, we could say post-labor society or a classless society in which everyone competes with everyone else, as we mentioned it in the letter. Uh, and they're politically organize, organized by a lethal structure 
by a regime of power led by police officers acting outside, outside the law, whose final form is this militias and which co coexists with other elementary forms of power based on armed violence, such as organized crime. And therefore, in which the objections and the oppositions can be responded by guns, as we have seen in recent, in recent cases of political violence in the country. Uh, this is a very, uh, just a parenthesis, uh, uh, I don't see, as Fabio say, as an imminent danger of a coup. Uh, instead, uh, I see a permanence of a Bolsonaro social phenomenon that acts with violence in another way, in a capillarized uh, way, you know? Mm. Uh, as Paul Arantes said the other day, it's a kind of decentralized authoritarianism. Yeah, I think that's, that's really uh, interesting. Can you, can you spell out what that, what that means? I mean, are you referring to sort of militias or gangs? Or I mean, what exactly is the hey, decentralized have, authoritarianism? Yeah, you have spread throughout the country, military police, militias, club shooters, who are willing to wreak havoc, use violence, as we have seen, and in, no, in numerous recent cases, spread ag across the country, right? So it's not just one coup, violent coup, that destroyed the uh, system, as we saw in the past. It's a very new uh, way of uh, conduct violence and use a uh, political violence. Mm. And as I said, start, uh, has a uh, start and in the margins of society and Bolsonarism is the point when this kind uh, of um, regime of power reach the center of the national politics. I think that's interesting. And it also shows where the exposes Bolsonaro's supposed nationalism, because if what you're saying is true, then he, Bolsonaro is actually an avatar of the opposite of sovereignty, of the weakening of state sovereignty, um, precisely through this disaggregated, uh, disaggregated yes, exactly. authoritarianism. It's the state's lack exactly. of monopoly over, over violence. Exactly, exactly. I want to add two points to that. First is that uh, beyond state violence, a, Bolso, a man like Bolsonaro in charge of the country, he authorizes people to go yes. from word to action. Yeah. So we've been witnessing in Brazil in the, in, in, in the past weeks, uh, you know, a, a, a mounting uh, amount of, of, of spare cases of political violence where one individual attacks another. And it usually is somebody with a Bolsonarism background that attacks somebody, you know, so he just stabs somebody in the bar or somebody steps in and guns down somebody in a school with the, with the, with the, with the weapon that his dad has. So we're having all these kind of situations. So this is, this is very different from, from state violence or state terrorism as we had in, in Cold War days in, in, in Latin America. And I think a second important difference, which uh, Thais has already pointed out, I just want to stress because I don't know how familiar um, foreign listeners will be with that, is the protagonism of, of police. And specifically in Brazil, we have a, a military police, which is, which is something that has been created under dictatorship. It has never been undone. So we have this uh, political uh, corps or, or police corps that are state, state corps, but who respond to the army. But basically they are they are, they are, you know, a violent uh, armed uh, police force. And this, they've been a political agent of their own. They've been evolving, you know, they've been politicizing, they've been, uh, they've been evolving, they've been perceiving themselves as kind of a last bastion or the saviors of the country of, you know, of yes. human and Christian values, you know, before the country, you know, goes out of control, goes to communism or to whatever uh, they may they may think. So again, this is very different from Cold War days when this was protagonized by the military. So despite the fact that Bolsonaro has this military background, I uh, we kind of see that uh, the, the political role of the police is something that has to be carefully looked on in the in the near future. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important yes, point. The, sure. the, the, the gangsterism there, because um, I think that is probably the right term for it. Um, the, the militias who now control kind of large swathes of the north and west zone of Rio, rather. Uh, and I think actually, interestingly, I think this is often a misconception about interwar fascism as it being incredibly orderly when actually it was a letting loose of of kind of everyday sort of gangsterism. Um, so, of course, there is this very kind of strong nationalism and statism to fascism, but there's also this sort of disorganizing element of just creating chaos at every at the everyday level, at the street level. And yes, again, it, I don't want to get into the Bolsonaro fascism debate because I don't think it's particularly useful, but that is one aspect where um, I think it, that aspect comes out very clearly. Yes, okay. I, I, Sorry. <laughs> I think is, 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 is the comparisons of fascism sometimes obscures the the our phenomenon mm. this is new phenomenon the right the far right extreme right phenomenon rise in the world uh, of course uh, they have elements of fascism but i have a lot of new elements that we avoid the temptation to compare directly with uh, fascism uh, despite yeah. they have fascism elements of course Another element, just a quick addition, another element is in this, uh, maybe the, our foreign listeners don't know, is that the Minister of the Economy is a Chicago boy. It, it, there's no nationalism in Brazilian economic policies now. It's Paulo mm. Guedes, is his name. He was a Chicago boy and he worked with Pinochet in Chile. He's a, a radical liberal, neoliberal, no yeah. nationalism economic policy. Yeah. And I think there is also one element I forgot to add is that uh, the police, they have lots of links with these criminal gangs. That's what the militias are in Brazil nowadays. So the difference between militias and let's say um, narco or drug, drug criminal you know, organizations is that the militias, one, of, uh, one key difference is that they have this, this um, intimate relation with state actors that includes the police force and that's where bolsonarism comes from they come from the militias these uh, very you know uh, obscure uh, gray zone where you know criminal actors interact with uh, state actors yeah. i mean just to give just to give a, a like a maybe concrete example it's like an off-duty cop or maybe a retired cop uh who goes and starts becoming part of an extortion racket in a in a local neighborhood and that's these are the people and that's what that's where bolsonarism comes from um so i think it's important to kind of maybe paint that picture um okay so kind of drawing this to a close we're going to talk a little bit about the broader latin american context just quickly um because i know people are interested in that looking at the context of what's happened in chile colombia and so on and where lula government would fit with that and then maybe just finally just talk a little bit about the brazilian left what the state is of the brazilian left because i think lots of uh Lots of foreign listeners are always interested um, and <laughs> want to hear good news about good things happening on the Brazilian left. I don't know if we'll have any good news for them, but um, <laughs> at least we can answer the question. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Latin American context. Um, of course, there's lots of talk about a new pink wave. I don't know what it looks like when it's kind of even less red, um, you know, whether like what color that is. It's like less than pink. It's like salmon color or something. I, I think none of the left-leaning governments um, in Latin America now are promising anything that radical. And certain ones have already faced important setbacks, such, in, such as in Chile, where the new constitution was rejected in a popular referendum earlier this month. Um, I don't want to talk too broadly and go into too much depth on those countries. That's something for another time. But to what extent would a Lula government change matters just in terms of the sheer weight of Brazil within uh, within the continent and within the region? Um, are there certain things that a, le- that a pink wave could achieve na- on kind of a national basis in each national country um, because of the simple fact that there's a friendly government in Brasilia? Well, I think this we, we would have to break down country to country on that because there are two very different situations. The first is countries where the pink tide has never kind of left out. This is the case of Venezuela and Bolivia, for example. In those cases, in the case of Venezuela, there is this awful crisis, permanent crisis, which has been on you know, for the last five, six years. And in Bolivia, it is a clear case of the, the lesser evil politics. Uh, so this is opposed to the cases of 
uh, Chile or Colombia or even Peru. It's, that's debatable if Peru is, is part of a pink tide. But anyway, what we could say is that uh, why why am I am I am I making the difference between those cases? Because in these later cases, there is expectations of change. There is there is hope attached to you know what's happening in Colombia and what's happening in Chile. And it's very interesting to note that these are specifically the countries that did not embark on a pink tide in the very beginning of the 21st century. However, they are at the, at the same time the countries where there were popular rebellions under during the pandemic, Peru, Colombia, and Chile. So we can make a case that uh, progressive politics in these countries are back again as a kind of, 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 of social management, of, of, of political management of social tensions. You know, when politics go to the street and they and there is, you know, rebellion, then uh, this this kind of open the way you open the path, you know, to to uh, to pink tide or to progressive politics, which I think also uh, is a testimony to lack of imagination, of political imagination of our, of our time. And this here, I'm not talking, you know, um, um, of specifically of anybody or trying to. This is this is a this is a common uh, dilemma or a common conundrum that we live in the world. And I think. The Chilean case kind of, 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 of makes that uh, explicit. Just to close this off, uh, as I said, I think a lot of listeners would be interested to know what the state of the Brazilian left is, if there's a, a way to kind of capture that, at least relatively briefly, without going into the uh, alphabet soup of different uh, <laughs> of different party names and so on because uh, we'll lose uh, we'll lose listeners that way. I can't do that. Um, so, uh, but but I'm sure listeners will be interested to know. I guess so. I mean, just to paint the picture in the broadest sense, you know, you have the the PT, which still exercises hegemony over the left, and in fact is very resistant to any challenge of that hegemony, um, and then the second largest party on the left has been PSOL, the uh, Party of Socialism and Liberty, um, which is now um, seeing its own sort of difficulties, having previously kind of grown in a period in which PT waned and PT were, were kind of largely attacked, attacked from the right, and, and lost a lot of support amongst the masses. Um, anyone want to just kind of add to the picture that I'm painting here? I think it's very um, good that you bring this question to the end, because I think it helped us connect to the very beginning and to what brought us to write that, that document, which is because um, the way that the political debate has been conducted in Brazil is, is, is very polarizing. So uh, both Lula and Bolsonaro have been pictured as, you know, as kind of superheroes that can save the nation. And this is uh, and, and this is a way of doing politics that obviously is um, treats people like you know like children, so it's infantilizing and depoliticizes the debate as well. And seen from the left, there is all this sense sense of urgency, which of course we agree with that that Bolsonaro has to be removed from office, but. The, the sense of urgency also points to a sort of, you know, freezing critical thinking and freezing criticism or freezing thinking as such. So the document that we tried to, that we brought to light, it's an attempt to think about the situation we live in. Um, so the consequence of that to the organized to political parties such as the PSOL is that there was that has been a strong pressure to the to to be part of Lula's uh, campaign, and we have to remember that Lula's has aligned his uh, vice president candidate is somebody that has been um, an, a historical enemy both of the PT and of Lula in particular because they have. Uh, met in the second round of presidential elections. So it's somebody who's, who, who's, who is a historical personage, person that comes from the, 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 the political party that has been the opposition to the PT all along you know, the last decades. So it's, it, it is this kind, of, this kind of alliance, on the other hand, 
has been very controversial among the left. And for social movements such as the landless movement, I have heard many testimonies of leaders from these movements that say that it's been very hard to work that candidacy or the support of Alchemy, which is the vice president to Lula, with their basis, because they have been taught or they've been seen to the past 20 years that Alchemy was, you know, the chief you know, repressor of social movements in the mm. state of Sao Paulo, which is the leading state. And suddenly he is our companion, as Lula calls him. So lots of tensions have been, have, have arose because of this situation. Concerning the PSOL specifically, as you mentioned, um, a, a, an important, there, there's been an internal debate whether the parties should, should support Lula from the first round or should they have their own candidate. And the, the first alternative was, has been imposed by the, by the direction of the party in a very undemocratic way. This has also generated a lot of you know, resentment and there's been a, an important uh, split. So about uh, hundreds of people left the PSOL in that context, not only because of that, but because the PSOL itself has aligned with another eco-capitalist uh, party win an alliance that lasts for, for, you know, for several years. So many controversial um, um, decisions have been taken in this context. And I think the background of, to that is this polarization and the sense of urgency, which has also, which has uh, frozen critical thinking mm. and also radical action. I think that's, that's well put. And it's something that uh, listeners everywhere will recognize because I'm sure you, wherever you're listening to this, will have experienced that element by which, you know, the threat of, uh, you know, the quote unquote fascist threat or, you know, the new far right, nationalist, populist, etc., cetera, um, that that imposes a certain, uh, I guess, it imposes its weight on the left in terms of that precisely that uh, kind of clamping down on critical thinking and this urgency to get the far right or whatever, the, the populist out of power immediately, um, which I think it acts as a sort of blackmail on any sort of longer term thinking. And uh, the world is increasingly short termist. And if the left isn't going to be long termist, then no one is. And that presents a real problem. Um, but uh, I think we'll end this here. Um, we obviously... Uh, you know, trying to be long-termist. I think this intervention that the collective has done is very good. Check it out on Damage Magazine. It's linked to in the comments here. Um, but uh, I guess just in the very, very short term, which is to say in the next couple of days, let's all hope that uh, Lula wins the first round. So uh, we can we can have we can have better fights and better struggles tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.